Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Look at that. Just look at it. It's so tall, you can't even see the top of it staring at it from the bottom here. It's enormous. I can't wait to get to the top. The view must be amazing. It's amazing how this hallowed ground can also bear something so wonderful and amazing. It would have been amazing to have gotten to go atop the Twin Towers, but the new One World Trade Center is equally awe-inspiring. Well, as much as we can stand around in awe at it from here, let's get inside and take the ride up. Absolutely fantastic. And look at that view. Oh my gosh. That's absolutely breathtaking. Take it all in. There's the Empire State Building, Hudson Yards, Times Square, Macy's. You can even see the protests happening down at Zuccotti Park from here. Ah, yes. You have to give them credit. It's nice to see this younger generation standing up for what they believe in and speaking their mind. A generation standing up and sticking it to the man. It never gets old. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the hard-rocking show, American Idiot. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. We've walked this empty street on the boulevard of broken dreams. But now that you're with us, things are looking a lot brighter. We have a revolutionary show of sorts to discuss on today's show. Of course, we can only be talking about American Idiot. This show was spawned from the blockbuster album that defined a generation and in turn brought them to rock with this show on the Great White Way. But... First off, the groundwork. So, let's lay it down. The story expanded from the Green Day album of the same name. In 2000, Green Day released an album, Warning, Village Voice. Music critic Robert Christigau said, in comparison to their previous album, Nimrod, it sounded like lead singer Billy Joe Armstrong was abandoning the first-person narrative in his singing. He's assuming fictional personas 
and a voice of a thinking left liberal. The critic also detected a faint whiff of Bertel Brecht in his writing. Brecht was a German playwright that developed uh, epic theater, theater that provoked rational self-reflection and led audiences to adopt a critical perspective. American Idiot was a long conceptual piece which was a response to the realities of a post-9-11 era. While they were writing the album, the whole band felt that the album should eventually be staged or become a film. After director Michael Mayer heard the album, he expressed interest in adapting it for the stage. Mayer added very little dialogue to the show. He felt instead that the music and lyrics were expressive enough to, uh, on their own, and even remove some dialogue before the show moved to Broadway. Now is the perfect time to introduce our design team. Music and lyrics by Green Day, book and lyrics by Billy Joe Armstrong, book by Michael Mayer, directed by Michael Mayer, choreography by Stephen Hodgett, set by Christine Jones, costumes by Andra Lauer, lights by Kevin Adams, sound design by Brian Ronan, hair by Brandon Daly, wigs by Leah Le- uh, Lucas, and makeup by Amy Jean Wright. It is important to note that the show did not have an intermission, but was a one-act musical. The musical arrived on Broadway on April 20th, 2010 at the St. James Theatre. It would play for nearly a year and 422 performances, closing on April 24th, 2011. The show was nominated for three Tony Awards that season and would rock away with two for Best Lighting Design for Kevin Adams and Best Scenic Design for Christine Jones. So... Without further ado, let's go down this lonely road. Set in the recent past, the musical opens with a group of suburban youths living unhappily in Jingletown, USA. Fed up with the State of the Union, the company explodes in frustration during American Idiot. One of the youths, Johnny, begins to tell a story in Jesus of Suburbia, revealing he comes from a broken home and feels dissatisfied with the world. He soon goes to commiserate with his friend Will, and a third friend, Tunny, joins the two at Will's house. As they party and get drunk, they run out of beer, prompting them to pick up more at the local 7-Eleven. Tunney exposes the do-nothing, go-nowhere quicksand of their lives in City of the Damned. Realizing they aren't going anywhere, Johnny challenges his friends to start caring about their lives and everything around them. Will's girlfriend, Heather, finds out that she is pregnant with Will's child and expresses her conflicting feelings in Dearly Beloved. Johnny borrows money and buys a bus ticket to the city for the three young men eager to escape suburbia. Before the boys are able to leave, Heather tells Will of her pregnancy. With no other choice, he tells his friends that he must stay at home and tells of another broken home. Johnny and Tunny depart for the city with a group of other jaded youths. Johnny's dreams and expectations of the city have fallen short so far, and while wandering the streets alone, he pines for a woman he sees in an apartment window. 
While Tunney finds it hard to adjust to urban life, he spends his time watching television and is seduced by advertisements featuring America's favorite son, an attractive and masculine all-American sex symbol. He becomes convinced that the favorite son is everything he wants to be as well. The favorite son is revealed to be an American soldier. Believing that joining the military will give Tunney purpose, he believed Johnny and the city would give him Tunney enlists. Back in the city, a frustrated Johnny manifests a rebellious drug-dealing alter-ego called St. Jimmy. Johnny takes party drugs for the first time during St. Jimmy. His newfound courage, thanks to St. Jimmy, and the drugs allow Johnny to make a successful move on the girl in the window. Two weeks later, Johnny admits he has injected heroin for the first time and spends the night with the girl he saw in the window, whom he calls What's-Her-Name. Back in Jingletown, Will sits on the couch as Heather's pregnancy progresses. He drinks beer and begs for a release. Meanwhile, Tunny is deployed to a war zone and is shot and wounded. Will and Tunny beg for relief in Give Me Novocaine. Johnny is smitten with What's-Her-Name, and they go to a club together to celebrate. But St. Jimmy has other plans for them in Last of the American Girls and She's a Rebel. St. Jimmy hands Johnny heroin, and Johnny pressures What's-Her-Name into injecting with him. St. Jimmy sets the mood. What's-Her-Name expresses her trust in Johnny. And Heather pledges her love to her newborn baby in Last Night on Earth. Will is increasingly neglectful as Heather devotes herself to caring for their baby. Heather has had enough of Will's pot and alcohol-fueled apathy. Despite Will's... Uh protestations she takes the baby and walks out at around the same time lying in a bed in an army hospital surrounded by fellow injured soldiers tunny falls victim to a hopelessness he has seen during wartime tunny hallucinates while on medication and imagines he and his nurse engaging in a uh, a balletic aerial dance he quickly falls in love with her his hallucination disappears and he's left with his fellow soldiers in agony. Back in the city, Johnny reveals the depth of his love for What's-Her-Name as she sleeps. The temptation of drugs, however, is too great. St. Jimmy forces Johnny to become increasingly erratic and amidst hallucinations and paranoid delusions, Johnny threatens What's-Her-Name and then kills himself with a knife. What's-Her-Name attempts to convince Johnny to get help. While the extraordinary girl tends to Tunney's physical and emotional wounds, as it is revealed that Tunney is now an amputee, and Heather and her baby are far away from Will, who sits alone on his couch. Johnny leaves a note for What's-Her-Name, saying he has chosen St. Jimmy and drugs over her. Angry and done, What's-Her-Name tells Johnny that he's not the Jesus of suburbia and reveals that St. Jimmy is nothing more than a figment of his father's rage and his mother's love. She leaves him and his unwillingness to acknowledge his issues behind. Hurt by What's-Her-Name's departure, Johnny longs for better days ahead. Tunny longs for home and Will longs for all the things he lost. St. Jimmy appears and makes one last attempt to get Johnny's attention, but Johnny has made the conscious decision to end his self-destruction, resulting in the metaphorical suicide of St. Jimmy. Johnny cleans up and gets a desk job, but realizes there is no place for him there or in the city. 
Will, all alone with his television, bemoans his outcast state. Will imagines Heather appearing with her new show-off rockster boyfriend, who is much cooler than Will. Sick of staying on his couch, Will heads to the 7-Eleven and surprisingly finds Johnny there. Johnny had sold his guitar for a bus ticket home. Tunny also appears at the 7-Eleven, having returned from deployment with the extraordinary girl. Johnny becomes furious with Tunny for leaving him in the city, but quickly forgives him, and the three friends embrace. Tunny introduces his friends to the extraordinary girl. Heather and her rockstar boyfriend arrive in style. In an uneasy truce, she allows Will to hold their baby. Other friends show up and greet the three men they haven't seen in a year. One year later, Johnny laments that he lost the love of his life, but he accepts that he can live with the struggle between rage and love that has defined his life. With his acceptance comes the possibility of hope. After the cast takes their bows, the curtains rise to reveal the entire company with guitars and they perform Good Riddance, Time of Your Life. Each performance of the song was recorded and given to audience as a free digital download. The The end. end. Let's discuss the parts that we like and the parts that could have been better and yeah all the things so <clears throat> for me this was an interesting show and this is my perspective because for me i would say i didn't nec- I, don't know, I didn't necessarily grow up with this album like you did this came out as i was going into high school and i don't know me and and the people i was around the the theater and the band people like we this wasn't our obsession this didn't narrate our life so i really did wasn't totally aware of this until like i got into college and when i was in the pep band at the university of utah and they were like hey we're gonna do this green day mix for for a basketball game and i was like cool yeah i know some of these songs on the radio that's great whereas when i met you and you knew every song from the album and like this was your life. This was I, the album that defined your your I mean, your teen years. Your 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 you know. This this album definitely helped me figure out who I wanted to be. Um, this came out when I was in ninth grade, um, and I remember uh, it was green, so I loved it. Like I, that sounds really crazy. I don't remember being green. I mean, I, don't even I mean the, the the heart grenade um, I, yeah, album I, was like this awesome army green with black and those were my colors and they're still my colors um but i remember it came out it was really cool i started listening to the album and i loved it i got a green day shirt and then i got a crush on a boy who also liked green day that wasn't so, me, just for the record. Yeah, no, it was not Andrew. Um, and that, <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. No, that guy doesn't even deserve a acknowledgement because I had a crush on him for like a year. And when I stopped talking to him, that's when he asked me out. And then he stood me up because he asked me to homecoming and then never 
got in contact with me for plans, so screw him. Screw him. But back to the show. (laughs) But back to the show. So I was really connected to this album. I had listened to it all day, every day. It was what was in my truck when I learned to drive. Um, I knew all the words to every single song, and I had already put together pieces of a show and like my own scenes in my own head um, based on you know, what I had listened to. So this was, like, really big to me because this was also, you know, a um, couple years after 9-11. And yeah. uh, in 9-11, I was in fifth grade, so <clears throat> it kind of it, it affected me, but I didn't understand to what. I just remember how painful and sad it was. And so in shaping me as a human, I you know, grew up with this and I was like, yeah, I want to be a person who changes the world. So that's what this album was for me. So the fact that it became a musical, I was so excited to see because I knew that it had to be that narrative, that story of wanting to be something more than you are. Right. And I mean, like I said, for me, I knew Boulevard of Broken Dreams. I knew American Idiot. I knew Holiday. Holiday. That's it. In fact, when I saw the show, the songs would like start, and I was like, ah. I felt like Kel in Good Burger, where I was like, ah. I know some of these words, you know? <laughs> like, half the songs, truly, I was like, are, are these new songs to the show? And after the show, when I asked you, you're like, no, that's, that was the whole album. That's the album. And I was like, Mm-hmm. They added a couple of different songs from other Green Day albums, and, but yeah, I, every song that was in the album was in the show. And that shows you how much I know about Green Day. <laughs> <clears throat> but to me, though, like even not knowing the album, I could connect with the story because I was young as well when 9-11 happened and when the war in Iraq and Afghanistan happened. And I could connect with these ideas, these angsty ideas of like the world having up. this anger and this the sadness and these, these negative feelings, not entirely understanding why and growing up in a world of fear and anger, but not mm-hmm. necessarily knowing why, but knowing that things aren't necessarily getting better. Well, and the way that we're trying to solve the problem is And you could recognize that it wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Doing something in the name of patriotism wasn't right. War but, and terrorism wasn't right. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely one thing to be like, you know... 6,000 people dying, we have to stop that again. Well, absolutely. But, tra- you know, at least here in the States, trampling over everything that our country stands for in the name of stopping that, you knew it wasn't right. There has to be a better way. And today, that's a thought that's like a no-brainer. But, you know, when this came out 15, 16 years ago, it was still like, that's an unpatriotic thought to have. You don't question the government right now. We have been attacked. This is a no- And it was like... You know, the older generation was really, even now, was really pushing the never question big brother of the federal government. They know what's best. And the younger generation was kind of like, this doesn't seem right. This is why, you made, is this is why you made us read 1984 well, in school. And even, you know, I, I, I was the guy, and I even say this now, I support the military. And I will continue to support anyone, anyone in the military, the service that they give, the choices that they make, and and their families and everything. I didn't make that choice for a reason. So I'm going to support them because they made that sacrifice. I can support them. I don't have to support their cause because part of how our 
country functions is if you're in the military, you don't get a say about what you're fighting for. Mm-hmm. You you have to go. That's that's why our military is successful is because they don't debate what they're doing. They just go and do it. It doesn't matter who's president. You just go and do it. That's that's your role. Your role is not to sit there and debate and figure out if it's right or wrong. Your role is just to follow orders. Mm-hmm. And so I will support anyone who fought in either war or continues to fight or do whatever because they made the ultimate sacrifice and all of that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I got to support their cause though. Right. Well, because us as Americans who are not serving in the military, it's that checks and balance system. We need to question everything so that we have, you know, a good moral compass to know what's right and what's right. wrong. If you don't have both sides coming together and discussing these things, how do you really know what's right and what's wrong? So to bring the focus back, because I feel like we're going a little we hardcore could, NPR, you know. We could definitely <laughs> go off the deep end with To this. me, knowing, having these feelings and these thoughts, I could connect with this album that was definitely throwing that out there. Casting doubt on... Everything political, everything global, all of this, really kind of criticizing the media for for brainwashing people in one idea. In fact, I have made this note. I mean, my dad, my dad and I have a lot of political differences. Don't get me wrong. I love my dad. But even recently, you know, of course, everyone's like, if you're hardcore conservative, you love Fox News. And if you're hardcore liberal, you love your CNN. And I've told my dad, I hate all cable news. (laughs) You know, I definitely think that there's some out there that are less reliable than others. I hate all cable news. I think they totally placate to one side or the other. And I said, I want the unbiased reporting. I do go to NPR to be like, can I just know what's happening? Did someone die? Did it snow? Is the market up? Thank you. I'll figure out my thoughts from there. I don't need you to tell me what to think. And I remember that after 9-11 and everything, it seemed like on these cable news networks... Suddenly everything was breaking news. Mm-hmm. Everything was break, breaking news. Dog takes crap in park. And we've got a whole graphic and everything for it. And I'm like, but what is really breaking news? And all of a sudden everything just became this media spread. And, and people got sucked into that. They constantly had to be fed the goings on. And it was never the positive going on. It was always the what you needed to fear next and that. And so I was like, I and so I connected with that. I was like, the media is already brainwashing us. The, you know, don't trust big government. Da, da, da. And I was like, OK, I can kind of connect with that. Well, the, the, the last thing I really want to say on this topic is, um, you know, I, I loved how the, the show explained what was happening to a generation, because this is kind of when we had the the development of the kind of punk uh, that we now know. The um, modern punk. Yes, the modern punk. This isn't your your Sex Pistols punk, your Ramones punk. This isn't the original punk. This is the modern punk. Yeah, and what you have going on here is a depiction of where these ideas come from of, you know, you don't just start out going, I'm going to stay on the couch and watch TV all day. You know, it's, or I'm going to go out and do all this heroin and drugs. Like, it all comes from a response to things. And so that's why when you have, you have, basically you have these three guys growing up in suburbia who are upset with the way the world is, and they all choose three different paths or three different coping mechanisms to go with it. Um, And so I like that you get to see that because just the genre alone of music, um, a lot of a lot of musicians during this time were um, 
inspired to create music to inspire change because of what happened in 9-11. Well, what I love also is this is not <clears throat> three people from the city, three people from poverty, three people from, I'll say, a small town. These are three white kids mm-hmm. from the, the suburbs. Mm-hmm. You know that they're probably middle to upper middle class. Yeah. And it's pointing out that social issues don't just affect where you... The, the people who think that they are free from social issues need to look in their backyard. Mm-hmm. So when we're going around going, we have to have social change to prevent X, Y, and Z from happening. And they go, why should what's happening in the Bronx or the south side of Chicago or, you know, on the south central LA, why should that affect me? Well, person living in the suburb of Dallas, because it's your kid too. Mm-hmm. Your kid who gets stuck well, on the couch and you think it's okay. Or your kid who leaves to go try to make it in the city and doesn't know anything about drugs and all of a sudden becomes a drug addict. Trust me, the majority of people, I would say the majority of people who become addicts, maybe I could be wrong about this, but I feel like they don't necessarily, like it's not a breeding thing. They're not No, it's, up it's in a response to trauma and trauma. They come into that environment. Well, exactly, because trauma is, you can't define trauma based on, you know, oh, in order for something to be considered traumatic enough to start doing drugs, you have to have this and abuse involved. No, no, no. Trauma's a, a, a by-person a, thing. Exactly. They're, each person experiences trauma in their own way, and we all might not even describe what has happened to us as trauma, but what happened with 9-11 is everyone experienced the same trauma. Mm-hmm. Maybe not all in the same way, but we all experienced that trauma mm-hmm. together. So when it came to reacting to it or responding to it we saw a lot of different variations people ran to join the military other people kind of found different ways to cope with it i.e drugs or whatever Mm -hmm. and other people got glued to the tv and just sat at home yep and so um i think that this show does a great job of depicting that part of the story that hasn't been told um about what we've gone through and i really think that as adults especially you and i in our generation as we come to um you know being the the rulers of the world and the leaders of our communities. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Right. But <laughs> when we start to think about, um, you know, that think coming to terms with the traumas that we've experienced, like the pandemic or 9-11, and then our own personal traumas is going to shape us as we are, as we become leaders. Yes. But I digress. We could go into this all the time. So let's focus yes, on the, the show. show. <laughs> I thought the casting was great overall. Um, some of these actors had actually worked previously with Michael Mayer on a similarly new reinvented work. Of course, I'm speaking of Spring Awakening. Um, and so that made the risk involved in the show a little less. And I think audiences were a little more at ease with it. You know, seeing this punk rock album come to Broadway, you might have been scratching your head and being like, oh, I don't know about that. Green Day on Broadway? But then you start to see, well, Michael Mayer's directed and he, you know, Tony Award for, for Spring Awakening. And, oh, John Gallagher Jr.'s in, well, yeah, I guess. Maybe we can't have an anti-establishment musical. (laughs) Maybe I'll give it a shot, you know. I thought the show was also really in your face and a for, it was very in your face and very forceful. (laughs) And I meant, like, it didn't sugarcoat things or be subtle. Like we mentioned, drug use, sex, alcohol abuse, depression, suicide. Oh, yeah, you you see him shooting, like, tying his arm off and And shooting shooting up up, heroin. They, They didn't, this was not... This show had no experience with the with the language of subtlety. It was just like, 
we're going to put it all out there. And with that, I feel like this was our generation's hair. Yeah, it was our way of trying to communicate to those who came before us that this is what we're thinking. This is what we're this, feeling. This we're is, not crazy just trying to grow our hair out or spike it up. And no, This is exactly what hair did where you could bring your grandparents or your parents to the show and be like, this is why I am the way I am. And, and every generation could get something different. And I really, like that was the first thought I had when we left. I was like, oh my God, this is like hair. This mm-hmm. is exactly like hair because these youngsters can bring these youngsters can bring their parents and whatnot to this show, and they're gonna love it for the music. But then their parents are be like, "Do you understand me now? Do you understand that it's not just loud music? There's a story in that." And their parents might be like, "Oh, oh, oh. you know, mm-hmm. breaking it down a little bit more." The set. Uh, the set was awesome. So I love that it was like grungy and scatty wampus kind of looking. Mm-hmm. It was like a bad college basement expanded. And plastered all across the walls. Yeah. And I love that the TVs were, there's all these TVs just everywhere on the back wall. And mm-hmm. then they all worked too and they incorporated them in the set. Oh, yeah, well, because there was that giant, like, scaffolding of TVs that they knock over. Yes, yeah, well, mm-hmm. that too. And then I love that they had different levels to use, uh, and the stage was almost rent-like, and that they used these different elements on the stage to move characters and mm-hmm. everything around. Like, I remember St. Jimmy being up on a scaffolding and running around, and I was like, mm-hmm. all right. Or, like, they used shopping carts. And yep. um, one of the ones that sticks out in my mind is... Um, during uh, Extraordinary Girl, to kind of show his descent into pain, he's floating from the ceiling, and she's doing this big goddess aerial ballet dance yes. around him, and her costume reminded me of what would later become the costume for Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark with the spider. You know, how big and floating oh, yeah. and giant it took up, and she's like, oh, it was so beautiful. Yeah, um, and then, <coughs> excuse me, speaking of costumes... Again, I liked how everything was grungy. Like, okay, it was grungy, and I, I say that because every time I hear grungy, I immediately I'm Seattle in the nineties. Mm-hmm. But it's it's modern grungy, if that makes yeah. sense. Like, the, well, you'd see it, and you would immediately think that's the word you'd think it's grungy. I mean, it's exactly what you'd imagine someone who. I mean, this is exactly how I wanted to dress during this, like during the two thousands. It was think of Avril Lavigne, think of. Um, you know, Good Charlotte, think of Blink-182. Simple plan. Uh, simple plan, yes, My Chemical Romance. Like, it was very, like, in-your-face, punk, um, you know, band t-shirts, ripped, skater, um, flames, anger. Like, uh, I'm trying to think of the belts and the jelly bracelets and the jelly earrings, like the spiky jellies. You know what I'm talking about? No. The combat boots. I wasn't in that group. The Converse. It's fine. Bette Midler sang to me at this time, so. Listen, if I could be Amy Lee or Avril Lavigne when I was in the early 2000s, like, oh, my life would have been golden. Um, yeah, you you hit my next point, which was the style. Um, I love the hair. To me, and you're going to correct me, I know this is going to happen, but it looked over-processed with, like, bad hair gel and the hair, like, the box mm-hmm. hair Well, because that's feel. what p- punk is with 
Um, bad hair. Punk is bad hair. No, punk is not bad hair. <laughs> punk is taking hair into your own hands and creating your own art out of it. And it might not be the right way to do it. I was going to say, I'm like, God don't damn it, you're going to do it the way that you want to. And so you did have people who didn't know how to safely lift their hair or to make their mohawks. They did have to iron them with a flat, like with a, a iron. Iron with an iron. Yes. Yep. Yes. That makes sense. You know what I mean? And so like, yeah, it probably, there were pieces that looked intentionally over-processed because there were lots of people. I mean, listen, I had a friend who told me that if I wasn't using 450 degrees on my straightener to straighten my hair every day, that it was never going to be straight enough. And, and my soul. hair is naturally straight. And your soul's dying right now, just saying that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it hurt then and it hurts now. And listen, I just as a random side note, guys, you only have to pass the, the, the smoothing iron over your hair once. If you're doing it more than that, fix the temperature and go slower. Just don't burn your hair off, please. These are hair hints with hope. Thank you. Um, but, you know I, I, mean? I just thought that like they had the right greasy look and the shaggy look. Like, it all work. I was literally, I was like, ah, yes, the early 2000s. Those were my friends on stage, okay? That's what we looked like. Um, and the simplicity of it all just it made it feel more real. Definitely. Adding to it was the lights. Of course. I mean, you can't have a, a rock show by a rock band without rock lights. You know what I mean? Rock. Rock on. Rock. <laughs> I love the use of shadows and darkness really throughout the show. Like, I remember the show being really dark, all in all, mm-hmm. in a good way. Um, the bright moments to me were, like, the most intense. And they were few and far between, but they really helped, like, climax the action. Like, the inciting action was building, building, building. The lights built with it. And then you had this really mm-hmm. big inciting action. The lights built. And it was like, ah! Oh! And then, like, the lights got back down again. Well, in addition to, like... Um, Because we already talked about the TVs everywhere, and the TVs had static on them, but the lights also felt like they were mimicking the static. Exactly. Which is great, because if you think about what's happening in this time, you see that static waiting. You see that static is waiting for something to appear and zap through and come through. And so having that static just sitting there with the lights helps subconsciously add that tension which i think was just brilliant yes that's actually what i was trying to figure out I was like i don't know how to put these words in with like it was like dark but and see yeah that that put it perfectly i also love the use of reds and blues and like they truly helped to communicate like when there was a love scene especially between the extraordinary girl and uh uh J- johnny tony no, no, oh no no uh what's her name and johnny um, it was very red. This is deep red. But then when like fear and addiction were taking place, or especially when like St. Jimmy was there, there were these blues and these purples. And mm-hmm. I was like, I love that because it's the opposite of, um, and you know, or, or even, you know, there's a, like an inner struggle between going for what's her name or for St. Jimmy and you see this beautiful purple light, you know, when, when, when it was the extraordinary girl and Tunny, there was, was more white. White and yellows because it was like the desert sand. Well, and it was like she was an angel. Mm-hmm. You know, her sa- his savior almost. Um, so I love that. I love that that just helped add to it. In regards to the direction, I thought Michael Mayer did a great job bringing to life this beloved album. 
Like you said, when you were describing the album and you were listening to it and you had these scenes in your mind, you know, as you were listening to the album, you know, people already had these ideas and these notions already in their head. And now it's his job to put it up there, you know, to to put kind of what he thinks and hopes for the best so that you don't walk away going, well, I kind of thought of it differently. I, you know, um, so he really put up on stage what I felt that many had in their mind listening to the album. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was able to keep the pop sensation. Ah, uh, popular. Well, that's what pop, no, no. <laughs> I, I know, but I, listen, you can't say Green Day and associate it with pop. You got to call it popular. Was able to keep the popular. Thank you. Sensation that was the album while creating a new work of art, which is the musical. Yeah. And I definitely think the album and the musical are two different things that stand on their own. Yes. And they're both pop. You are. And in his direction, he really took us to a dark place and helped us recognize and understand these demons and kind of gave them a name. We're talking about like PTSD and drug addiction and depression. You know, really pointing out that these things exists and not just in like slums and that but like our average everyday people if you will and still manage at the end of the show though to give us a quote happy ending well and i think what really um to kind of add on that idea is that um we have all these issues happening and especially in places like in like where we're from utah you know this idea of overusing um a uh, prescription drugs. Opioid it, addiction. Yeah, it's very common in suburbia, and everyone pretends like it doesn't exist, mm-hmm. and everyone makes all these bad choices, and all these bad things happen, and not necessarily a happy ending, but it shows us that life continues after the bad choices, and you can still choose to make it better if you want. Right. And I think that that message of hopefulness is a little more... Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, like, I think Tunny is the one that gets the best happy ending in that he, he tried no to do legs. something. Well, no, he tried to do something with his life. And yes, he no longer has legs, but he's gotten, he has a partner in life now. Mm-hmm. In the, uh, an extraordinary girl. And they have and shared trauma together to and, cope. And they have something to bond them. He has someone to connect with. Mm-hmm. He is a representation of PTSD, but he has someone to help him through it. I think Johnny, who struggles with drugs has come back and you don't really know like is he what what happens with him you just see him at the 7-eleven and they mm. coming home and but that's okay, where the well, hope is well but here's the thing does he get to go home who takes him in he has no partner he does he have a job well i mean he's cleaned up and he got a job but he, he leaves it all in the city and it's like okay so what's he doing so i guess he's starting a new start that's hopeful and then you've got will who has a kid with his ex-girlfriend who's now gone on to be more success has a more successful life and a happier life. And the only thing that he's done, who's he's severely depressed, he's finally gone off the couch. Okay, that's helpful. And he got to hold his kid. But what happens next? So it's not the happiest of endings, but, no, it's, but like it's like hopeful. a happy ending. It's a realistic ending. Mm-hmm. Um, which I can appreciate. And that's why I'm like Thank you for not making this dark show and then being like, but don't worry, everyone. Everything worked out in the end. No, it doesn't necessarily work out in the end. So as for the music, um, I thought the music was really iconic. And I mean, I think everyone can agree. It's, it's Green Day's American Idiot. It's 
It is an icon. Did, have they released an album since then? I think they yes, have. Yes, they've released one or two. And, I mean, look, my memory of Green Day was, you know, Basket Case. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Basket Case, do you have that yes, time? Yes, yeah. For yeah. some reason, like, that song <laughs> came in my head, and then I heard, because I'm in too deep. And I'm like, that's not the right one. That's 741, I think. Anyway, um, yeah, like, that's the one that I know. That's the album I know. Um, I thought that it kept all the things that fans loved about the album, but then, like, musicalized them. Like, yes. I thought 21 Guns is probably one of the most beautiful ballads I've ever okay. heard. Okay, well, and that one wasn't on the album. And that song to come out, uh, that song came out of um, writing American Idiot, the musical. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And then oh. they released it as a single before the musical came out. Oh, very mm-hmm. interesting. I did not know that. Okay, yeah, because I was like, that's one of the most beautiful it ballads I've ever heard. It is such a beautiful song. Uh, the only, I will say the one song that I, 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 if I never hear again, I won't be mad. When September ends. Oh my gosh, that song has just been overplayed. Mm-hmm. And I'm good. I don't need to hear that again. I, I mean, I loved the song when I listened to it because it said it was inspired by him, uh, Billy Joe Armstrong losing his father to a fight with cancer. And, um, you know, and it was beautiful, but yes, it is 100% overplayed. That's that's the only re- I mean, that's that's a beautiful story. And, and I mean, knowing that, yeah, but it just, yeah. Um, and I do love that they brought the song Time of Your Life at the end. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. everyone's graduation song right there. Well, okay, I just want to pause on that song really fast. I love that the title of the song is Good Riddance and then Time, Time of, of Your Life. Life because it's, the song really is about like, how do I move past something? You know, another turning point for a uh, fork stuck in the road, you know. And I just think that really it is that hopeful, it's that, it's that, hope at the end of a really scary moment and i just i just love that and i love that it's good riddance because it's like ah well i should just be able to move on should just be able to go on and it's actually no no you you can't you gotta deal with your trauma people you gotta deal deal, with your trauma deal with your issues work through it (laughs) you got it's okay therapy is normal therapy is great we all need therapy listen to our last episode um and then you know there's a lot of jukebox musicals out there there will always be jukebox musicals. There have always been jukebox musicals. To me, this was a really good use of a popular album. Sometimes when they bring jukebox musicals to the stage, it's kind of like, hmm, how is this going to go? Especially if it's just like focused on one piece of work. Usually they do a collective body of work to pick one album from a very successful artist and make that the focus. You just kind of go... Hmm. But I also, and I thought this was great. Well, and I think that a lot of that also has to do with, you know, how the original album came to be. And I think that, like uh, we said in the beginning, their intent after they wrote it was always for it to become a story. Yes. And I think that that's just really cool because you don't see that a lot these days with artists. I mean, like, when I, I mean, Lady Gaga does it, but not everyone creates an entire story with one album anymore. So, yeah, the show has had several notable performers, including John Gallagher Jr., Tony Vincent, Billy Joel Armstrong, Stark Sands, um, Rebecca Naomi Jones and Joshua Henry.
let's talk about the impact this show has had on theater and its history. It's another, so starting with theatrical impact, it's another huge rock musical. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that is significant. I know that we have kind of moved into the era of rock musicals, but to be successful as well, I think is also kind of important. Um, I, it didn't have a lengthy run on Broadway, but I also think it, it ran just long enough to put its mark and it's, you know, I love hearing people be like, I didn't know Green Day was a Broadway show. And it's like, go check it out. Well, and I also think that the time in which it was running also comes to play a, a role because it was released in 2010 10. and closed in 2011. Right. And we were, um, this was a couple years into President Obama's um, presidency, his first term, and a lot of things were shifting politically um, that we were wanting. And so we didn't need this angsty show to remind us because we were finally talking about the opioid addiction and, um, you know, drug and alcohol overuse and all this other stuff. But also, the show took place in the St. James, which is a huge venue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it the show... Had it opened a year earlier and had it been in a more intimate venue, it probably could have had a longer like run. Like Broadhurst or maybe yeah. the Barrymore. Yeah, but venue and time frame and what was happening, you know, politically, I just the think The mood of the country was changing, yeah. And so we didn't need the show anymore. This is also another very successful jukebox musical. Yes. And a very successful transfer of a popular album to the stage. And again, I mentioned it before, I'll say it again, this was a new generation's rent. Definitely. So let's talk about the societal impact as, as uh, like we haven't been talking about it this whole time. It brought a new generation slash audience to the theater. I'll let you say it this time. Yeah. Well, no, because <laughs> here's the thing. Generations aren't defined by like every 20 years. I'd say a generation like every 10 years, you know. Um, and it did it. It brought people who were, I'd say, born between 1995 to 2005. It brought them to the theater, mm-hmm. you know. And um, it held up a mirror to society regarding the burden that a generation went through following 9-11 and the war on terror. Yeah, and because even now we're just barely starting to see um, shows of negative things that happened during that time. We mm-hmm. still haven't had a lot of shows come out dealing with you know, our, our, I hate to keep using this word, but our, our collective trauma that we went well, through. Well, not, not just that, but like the way we've, the country has dealt with things. Like, you know, when we saw The Visitor um, at the public theater this fall mm-hmm. and how we're now very uh, racist regarding Arab Americans or Arabs in general. Mm-hmm. You know, these kind of things exist. You know, there's patriotism and there's just downright racism. And I think, that kind of stuff is starting to come to the surface that we're pointing on going, hey, actually, what, you know, you're you're saying that it's okay to say this in the name of, you know, because this happened to you and it's not. Or you're okaying your actions to do this and it's not. And we're starting to see shows like American Idiot pointing that out saying, yeah, we all went through it, you know. So having that collective journey, it allows us to be able to share in that. Exactly. So, um, sorry, I was just going to say, I also think that the show recorded a generation's reaction to the events we've already mentioned. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you've had a lot of shows 
early on in musical theater that did that. And you know, it was more about creating new works, maybe, or escape works or something. Or, well, it was like creating your own worlds. Yeah, or, or, or taking from already classic works or something. And, and, and with American Idiot, I felt like that was a more current history of yes. something. And it was like, this just happened or is happening. Mm-hmm. Surprise! And I also feel like it forever enshrined this album into the tomes of pop culture and theater. And I can say pop culture on that one. You can. Listen, I just, (laughs) not to make it a big deal, but it's a big deal. You cannot call Green Day what they do pop. It's just not. Well, not yet, at least. Give it another 40 years. (sighs) I shudder. I shudder to think. Oh, my goodness. So I think we have to ask, is the show still relevant? I think it is perfect for regional, community, and college theater. But I'm not sure there is a need or a place for the show right now on Broadway. Like you had mentioned about the timing, like why it ran so so short, I think the overall message and feel of the show just doesn't feel right for the time. I don't know that we need a show that's angsty, in your face, whatnot, hardcore like that. And I I don't know that that message... Is the right one right now. Yeah, I, think I mean, with all of those issues in that right. way. Right. Well, and I definitely think that maybe 2016 to 2020 maybe would have been the time to put this show on because we definitely needed a good bit of angst and anger to come through during those times. But, but now we just need dump truck, dumpster the fire, dumpster fire the musical is what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> Dumpster the fire. The Dumpster musical. the fire. The <laughs> musical. Wow. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> As promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we had the good fortune of seeing the show back in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, after the show, we got to meet the cast, including John Gallagher Jr., Sans, Stark Sands, Rebecca Naomi Jones, and Joshua Henry, who I look back now at all those people who, all those people nominated for a Tony, and I think... I think, I don't know if Rebecca Naomi Jones has won a Tony, but I know that Stark, no, and I know Stark Sands, I don't think has won. But anyway, going down the road, I mean, Stark Sands would go on to be Charlie in Kinky Boots. Rebecca Naomi Jones would go on to play in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Joshua Henry would win his Tony for, um, oh, no, he would not win the Tony. And I thought he would win the Tony. In Carousel, he played, uh, but, uh, not the lead. No, he was the lead. He was um, the Carney. I can't think of his name. It's not Bugsley. What the hell is that? Um, but he, he played the lead uh, Carney guy um, who um, has that big soliloquy at the end of Act One. Anyway, I'm sorry that you're not a big musical theater buff when it comes to the Golden Era shows like I am. Sorry. It's going to bother me, and I'll look it up later. But yeah, uh, Joshua Henry should have gotten the Tony that year. That was the same year as like Spongebob. I think, uh, oh, what's his name? Tony Shalhoub got it for the band's visit. 
And that was, mm. Ethan Slater was up for it mm-hmm. with Spongebob. And we were like, mm, Tony Shalhoub, you're great. Tony Shalhoub was brilliant, don't get me wrong. But, but... I, Joshua Henry doing that soliloquy at the end of Act 1 of Carousel, I was like, eh. yeah. And then Ethan Slater singing Ethan Upside Slater. Down, I was like, ah. So, um, yeah, so I mean, to see these guys, though, like early on, I was like, you know, you never know who you're going to be. Flash forward a couple of years, you know, it's like, oh, my God, you were totally B. Um, now, this is a story that has nothing to do with American Idiot, except for the fact that it happened right after the show and outside the St. James Theater. Oh, my gosh. Hope and I were finishing We'd, up the Kiss and Cry line. And we were kind of trying to organize everything and put our stuff into Andrew's we just, backpack. Yeah, we had just stepped away. We were in between the St. James Theater and the Helen Hayes, uh, the Helen Hayes Theater, yes. Um, and we see this guy on his phone, right outside a car. But we recognize the voice, and we look over. Well, no, I recognized his silhouette and his shoes. I recognized his voice, and we both looked at each other. And I went, "Is that?" And she goes, "Yeah." And I said, "Are you sure?" And yeah. No, it's- I said, "Andrew, that's Eddie Izzard." And you go, "Who?" And I said, "Don't look." And of course, <laughs> me, huh? Anyway, it was Eddie Izzard. Yeah. And now, no, we normally don't do this. I want to put it out there. When you see someone, when you see somebody who's famous on the street, leave them alone. Well, here's the brilliance of it is I was so, because I'm a very shy person uh, in a public setting like this. I, I actually was like, Andrew, wait, don't look. And then we're both sitting there behind our program. Like, we're, we're trying to this like. This is like Mary Moe <laughs> from a British farce. Tr- like we're bad spies. <laughs> it's like don't look. Below. I'm sure one of Is our it- playbills were upside down, and we're trying to like blend in with the wall in purple like dress and <laughs> dress shirt. And, and so he gets in the car though. And the, this is where things get funny. And like we look at him, we smile, like, "Hi, we're not we're from, at you. We're from a cult. Do you want to come join and drink the Kool Aid?" No, it was more like, well, "Hey, don't look at us." Well, no, no, because he gets in the car and he like looks at us, and we drop our programs and just like smile. Like I felt like those people from The Simpsons, you know, the leader's good. Anyway, um, and he looks, and this, and like I said, this is where it gets funny. His windows rolled up, and he's, I'm, sh- I think what he said through the window was, "Do you want an autograph?" But all we heard was, and so now we're playing charades. We're like, <laughs> what? And then, then keep in mind, we're against the wall on the sidewalk, and he's in the car. I'm normal, horrified. Normal people would just like walk over to the car and be like, I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> but no, we stand on there, exaggerated movements. What? <laughs> Finally, he realizes his window is up, and he goes, bloody hell. Do you want an autograph? And we were like, oh, that would be amazing. Thank you. So we walk over and he goes, do you have a pen? Yes. And then we're looking for something from the side. And we go, I'm so sorry. All we have is these playbills from the show we just got out of. And I know you weren't in it. Do you mind signing? And he goes, absolutely. Under one condition, you have to come see my show. Well, what show are you in? Race. Done. Okay, great. We'll go get tickets. Yeah. So... I believe uh, Race is our next show. Or the one after. Yeah, so it's coming soon. You you can find out how that ends, part two of the Eddie Izzard saga. But it was like, we finished, and then he drove away, and we both had like the teen girl, scream. But I was like, we just met Eddie Izzard. Well, uh, I believe In the most the comedic exa- fashion. I actually believe that the exact response was, was, hee hee, I have a French loaf. 
Yes. And then I ran away. <laughs> so it's fine. It, yeah, it was absolutely incredible. But back to American Idiot. You know, it was really great, except for the kids behind me that wouldn't shut up. Yeah. So it felt like a rock concert to me the entire time. Um, especially because people your age and the people like a little younger than you, because keep in mind, you were only 19, 19. Wow. Young and you. 19. So like the 16 to 19 year olds. Um, yeah, y'all were, y'all were living your best life, but forgot, like, we all paid, like, Hey, I a was a very well-behaved theater goer. Damn straight. But, you know, like, I, I, there were all these teenage girls that were just going nuts, like, it was a Green Day concert, and it was like, this is not the appropriate time to stream. This is the St. James Theater. Well, no, they were just talking really loudly And they were taking the pictures. Time. Yeah. So that But, was, of course, it wasn't taking pictures on their phone. It was taking pictures with a camera. Because it was 2010. 2010. But besides that, I really did enjoy the show. It was great. It was really good. With the new year upon us, and us returning to the theater, we look forward to seeing the show again. You'll be able to catch American Idiot sometime, somewhere, near you soon. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review like and subscribe you can also find us on facebook instagram and twitter at stage whisper pod and feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stage at gmail.com our theme song is fox by music for wildlife other music on this episode provided by the zombie dandies maxim Kornyshev, man bites dog lorenzo's music and billy murray